Okay, good evening, everybody. Um, excellent. Okay, welcome back to class number three in our MythGuard Academy. <laughs> Says three out of who knows how many in our MythGuard Academy class on Sir Thomas Mowry's Mort d'Arthur. So, um, I am going to admit at the beginning of class tonight that uh, I'd, I'm not going to try <laughs> to keep to the schedule. So I'm going to, I'm, I'm declaring us from the beginning officially a week behind. Uh, and remember that there's a reason, this is the reason why I didn't make up the big schedule in advance, right? Because especially for these beginning sessions, when everyone's kind of getting oriented uh, to the language and to sort of the world, there's a lot of kind of you know, kind of big picture stuff and 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 some for some sort of basic stuff that we need to talk about here. Um, that uh, you know we're probably not going to be talking about to the same extent. You know, in in a few months. So I knew we were going to go slowly for these first few sessions. That's why I had planned short stretches of text. Uh, but we'll we'll see. So here's what, and actually the the timing works out pretty well anyway because uh, of course we're having class right now uh, and we're going to have class next week as well. Um, but after next week, uh, I'm going to be away for a week. So uh, you know, so we have class this week and next week, and then one week off, and then I'll be back for uh, the rest of the month of August. Um, so my plan here, uh, on the schedule for next time was, uh, the story of, uh, Balin and Balan, uh, the story of, uh, uh Balin and his, uh, brother Balan. Um, and, um, we're not going to, it was zero, zero chance that we're going to get to that next week. I'm not even going to try. It's absolutely fine. And again, it's actually good. If we can get through, uh, the tale of Merlin here at the beginning by the time uh, we get to the end of next week, that'll be absolutely fine. And then we can uh, go on and start uh, the story of the Knight of T the Two Swords after uh, the short break. So, um, uh, good. Oh, yeah, thanks for reminding me, Tony. I do have to. There we go. I do always forget to do that when I'm doing go to webinar and Twitch at the same time. Sorry, I had to double. Uh, the cool thing about having the two uh, webcam pictures of me at the same time showing on Twitch is that they're actually mirror reversed from each other, right? So I'll like raise my right hand in one picture and my left hand in the other picture. It's a little, it's a little trippy actually, but um, anyway, okay. Yeah, so anyway, but I appreciate uh, you reminding me about that, Tony, so we don't uh, confuse anybody. All right. Um, so good. All right. Um, let's, uh, let's, so having talked about the schedule a little bit, well, I'll update it, uh, uh, more precisely later on, but, uh, just know we're going to, we're going to be finishing, uh, uh, the first section. What is the first section of the, the, uh, of, the, the novel edition? Uh, what is book one, uh, in Caxton? That's what we're going to get through next week. All right. Um, so uh, before we start, though, one quick announcement that I wanted to make. Uh, Baymoot. So let's not forget our, the, our next regional event is now approaching. It is less than a month away. August 18th, Saturday, August 18th in Oakland, California at Mills uh, Mills College uh, in, uh, in Oakland, California. Um, 
Uh, we're going to be having Baymoot. Uh, it's going to be a really great event. This will be my second visit to the Pacific, uh, well, Pacific Northwest, not going to the Pacific Northwest, but to Northern California, to the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, uh, really, I've actually been to the whole like Pacific time zone very infrequently. Um, uh, only maybe my fourth trip total to California, actually. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm really excited to, to get out there. Looking forward to getting to see uh, many of you. The registration deadline for Baymoot is the end of the month, the end of the month of July. So we're, we're, we're really approaching that now. We've got about a week left uh, for registration. So I do urge everybody who is in the Northern California area, please do make sure to get in there and get registered. It's gonna be an awesome time. So uh, again, that's uh, uh, Baymoot. If you, if you go, it's uh, really easy to find. You just go to our website, which looks like this, and you scroll down to the events, which are right all right here. And you can see here's Baymoot. Uh, on August 18th, and you just click on there, and uh, this gives you all the details. You can see the schedule for the day, which is going to be really fun. I'm actually doing a talk. Uh, I'm giving a uh, a talk on Narnia, actually. I'm giving a C.S. Lewis talk uh, at this one, um, which is going to be fun. Uh, the theme of the uh, the theme of the conference really made me think of Narnia for some reason, so I'm going to be I'm going to be doing that. Anyway, so here's the registration button. Simple as, as as anything. There you go. Here's where we are at Mills College. So uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be cool. So um, please do come and join us if you are anywhere nearby. And I'm hoping we'll have more details about this later on. I'm hoping to do some kind of informal meetup on the day before on Friday. Uh, again, for people in the area. But uh, uh, we'll we'll get more to you on that as uh, I figure out what I'm doing. All right, let us get back into the text here. So we had just gotten to the sword and the stone last time, to the Christmas miracle, and we were talking about the kind of parallels and the way that Mallory sets that up. Well, the way that Mallory sets that up, also, of course, the way that Merlin sets that up very explicitly, right? You'll notice how very uh, sort of, um, you know, stage manager-ish Merlin is on occasions like this, right? Um, he's... Um, He's not usually the star of the show, but he uh, he makes the show happen here, right? Doesn't he? Anyway, so he orchestrates the Sword in the Stone thing, or at least he has some foreknowledge that it's going to happen, right? Because he's the one who advises the archbishop to command everybody else on pain of cursing, right? On pain of excommunication, come to this uh, uh, to this service on Christmas in this place, and. Um, uh, and uh, and then you can you can uh, then you can do that you can uh, um, uh, though I'll be there for when the the miraculous appearance of the sword and the stone appears there at Christmas. Um, anyhow, so uh, we just got to the but we haven't gotten to the actual pulling of the sword out of the stone. What we saw was the primary function it seemed uh, of the sword and the stone is to prevent the squabbling, right? There were lots of people, Uther's been dead now, and although, as we saw last time, you know, his dying act is to acknowledge that he has a son named Arthur, you know, who can lawfully be king after him, but nobody knows where he is, right? And uh, so he's, he's, he's not to be found, and there are lots of people who are quite keen to be king. Um, by the way, so... I got a really great uh, email from Richard Rowland talking about the, you know, I was talking about the, 
this sort of how complicated this thing is, how Merlin keeps keeping things a secret and yet it's not a secret, right? I mean, there's there's all these um, uh, times where he seems to be going way out of his way to be secretive about things and then publicly declaring them at the same time. And, and it seems just kind of hard to follow exactly what his plan is. Um, and uh, let me first start off by uh, just kind of giving credit to Richard for, I think, the reading that he put together. I, I wish I had time to read you the whole thing. I don't. Um, but basically what he was pointing at, he, he went through and he was sort of analyzing, okay, who knows what at what time, right? You know, what are the things that only Arthur uh, or only Uther and Egraine know? What are the things that only uh, like Uther and uh, Sir Ector know? What are the things that are public knowledge uh, and, and and all this stuff? And basically, the 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 conclusion that he was drawing is that essentially, when you when you kind of back up and look at it, Merlin has created a really cleverly orchestrated a really cunning situation, right? Where on the one hand, the exact location and personal identity of Uther's son is unknown, right? Uh, they know that uh, he, th they know that uh, Sir Ector has a foster kid whose name is Arthur. They know probably, though Ector doesn't seem to be the foremost knight in the land or anything, and not a hugely prominent public individual. Uh, and uh, Uther has declared that he has a son whose name is Arthur. But there's not really very much reason for anybody outside to connect the two things together. Um, again, it's been sort of orchestrated in such a way that um, nobody knows, only Merlin knows everything. Right. And again, who the child really is, like which which child is in fact Uther's child is unknown. So his his identity is still kept secret and therefore his life is kept safe in a time when obviously there are many who are, uh, you know, who are uh, uh, out there gunning to be king. Um, and yet enough is known and publicly attested that when Arthur comes forward, there's lots of evidence to back up his claim, right? And I, this this reading that Richard was doing uh, makes a great deal of sense to me. Um, and you know, I, I think that we can see this. There's one, uh, and he, he he goes on to conclude the over complexity of this, right? I'm going to hide things from some and reveal it to others, and then reveal it at a different time to others. And um, this is not. This is not a. Uh, this is a. This is a feature, not a. Not a. Not a. Not a drawback of this plan. Um, we love this kind of thing in the Middle Ages. You know, we love. You know, uh, very complicated things. <laughs> Richard says. Remember, Byzantine was a compliment. Um, so yeah. So that's that's fine. There's 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 no reason to think. Um, that you know we need to find like the simplest explanation they were not always interested in the simplest explanation the thing that i would add to that um the thing that i would add to that would be we also needn't look for and and to me this is actually one of the the sort of the downsides or at least the the kind of challenges of uh, readings like the one that Richard was doing and that is there is a kind of presumption of consistency right that okay that all of these different things that Merlin is doing at different times and all this different stuff that's happening that this is like one consistent plan in fact this is the the working out of one consistent plan and it might well be and i think reading it on that premise is a good place to start uh, i have no objection to that at all but what i would say is 
don't cling to it, okay? Because it might not always be true. Um, there are going to be times when the text is just going to flatly contradict itself. Okay, I just, it just, it, it's going to say that there, you know, there will be no reconciling uh, of the things that uh, that are said to happen in the text, right? It's just, it's just not possible, um, and that's okay. Like they were fine with that. I would add that, well, on the one hand. I'm tempted to say Maori in these early sections doesn't really seem to value that uh, that much. But at the same time, I'm also tempted to say, I think he's a little clumsy as just as a storyteller as well. One of the things that's really fun about reading Maori all the way through is watching how much, how Mallory grows as a writer throughout this story. By the time we get to the end, I mean, this book, especially in the last two major sections um, after the quest for the Holy Grail. The quest for the Holy Grail is really interesting, but after the quest for the Holy Grail, the end of the book after the quest for the Holy Grail, it's like the first novel. I mean, it really is. It's, it's, there is nothing that more anticipates both the kind of storytelling and the kind of story that you get uh, in the novel. It's, it's remarkable. It's the closest thing to a novel that you get anywhere in the Middle Ages um, and really that you will get uh, for, uh, for quite a while yet. Um, so anyway, it, it, it's Mallory definitely, uh, def, definitely grows and develops. And I think it, it's, you know, we don't know exactly the sequence in which all of these different things are written. I mean, it certainly would be rash to think that, uh, this section, just because it comes at the beginning, necessarily means that that was written first. That's not necessarily the case. In fact, uh, most people think that the the part that's coming up right after I stopped outlining the classes, uh, the bit about the Emperor uh, Lucian, um, is um, is probably the first written uh, of the sections. But but that's that's uh, that that's not that's not super important. Um, and nevertheless, it seems pretty clear that this stuff here at the beginning generally is fairly early uh, in Mallory's work. Um, and although some of his love of just kind of hopping around from one story to another and uh, just kind of popping from incident to incident uh, without sometimes much of a clear narrative thread connecting them, um, that's something that's going to happen you know, that, that's going to continue to happen, uh, uh, for quite a while. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, Karita, I don't know how much evidence we have about how long it took Maori to write the text. It's a great question. Um, and we don't really know. It's one of the really difficult things about, uh, medieval works is that there is, there rarely survives anything like evidence, uh, of that. I mean, Karita, think about the challenge, you know, all the stuff that we've read from Christopher Tolkien in our, in our long series on, uh, on the history of Middle Earth. And think about the difficulty that he sometimes has of dating uh, the texts that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, right? And when, he, and when he did that and how long it took him to do it. Um, and Christopher is doing that with incredible advantages, right? With this huge survival percentage of the manuscript material. I mean, Tolkien almost never threw anything away, right? So an enormous percentage of every piece of paper Tolkien ever scribbled on has been preserved, right? And a lot of that contains things like dated letters or exam papers or dated um, 
uh, dated uh, uh, like uh, menus at uh, the 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 school dining hall, you know, and that, and that kind of thing, you know. So uh, it, it's it's the, the 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 what Christopher has to work with, uh, and sometimes he himself wrote the dates, you know, on his manuscripts. Uh, so the the amount of evidence that Christopher has to work with is incredible, uh, and yet it's still hard for him to figure out sometimes exactly the dates. Sometimes he can do it, and sometimes he can't. With medieval authors, we almost never have any kind of indicator because none of that stuff survives at all. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, um, it's very uh, yeah, Tony exactly in his own personal memories sometimes too, though sometimes those are misleading. But yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it's it is uh, it is it is hard. I mean, it's 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 exactly a kind of question that it is totally natural to really want to know the answer to <laughs> but it's really it's very very hard uh for us to figure that out sometimes we'll we will have some evidence like for instance there might be you know like a a, a partial manuscript you know that we can date and then another manuscript that has more but even those things i mean uh, there's a lot of doubts there um anyway but Given how long it takes even to read this, I have to imagine it took him quite a while to write it. Uh, plus, he was in prison, so he had time. Anyway, um, okay, so uh, let's see. Oh, Marilyn asks, does the character of Arthur grow as well because he's mostly a jerk so far? Yeah, he does, though, Marilyn, one spoiler that I will give you. Um, King Arthur? is almost never going to be the main character of this book. So um, and that's just kind of something that we have to, I'm, I'm just going to warn you about that in advance. Um, uh, don't, don't look to sort of, follow, there, there are some things that are adorable about Arthur and he does, I mean, he's, uh, he has some rough moments here in the early going, I agree. Uh, and he definitely comes off looking better at points down the road, but he's not gonna, re he's in, in many ways, he's not really the protagonist of this story. Um, and we'll see that will get more and more pronounced uh, as time goes on. Um, yeah. Um, okay, cool. Um, yeah, yeah, we're gonna look at that passage today, David. I thought that was a good passage for Arthur, so I wanted to look at that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's see. Um, David says, I, I do wonder how much of Arthur's earliest actions as king are really the policies of his advisor rather than, rather than just his. It's, I mean, it's hard to say. And of course he's, he's in a difficult situation, right? Um, uh, and there are also ways in which I think part of the lack of empathy we might have for him, or I mean, if you if you don't especially admire Arthur, um, that might be your fault. <laughs> that is to say, it might just be that your values and Mallory's are kind of different, right? And it's one of the things that is super challenging um, and that I always really try to push hard against is to try to examine that, right? When you're reading a passage and you're saying, okay, you know, 
this this is Arthur being bad here, right? We're supposed to, I, I disapprove of what Arthur's doing. On what basis do you disapprove? Do you disapprove because it conflicts with your own personal values? Because that may or may not be relevant, right? In fact, it's very likely not to be relevant. Um, and that is to say, I mean, like, I mean, it's kind of interesting on a personal level. Um, it tells us something about you, but it doesn't tell us much about the text itself, right? What we need to do is to, to kind of try to put those sorts of things aside. If he acts in ways which are not ways that you act, you would act in or that you would approve of, we have to try to get past that and see, are we, like, based on the cues from the text, does Mallory approve? or disapprove, right? Are we meant to approve or disapprove? How can we know, right? How can we know what is just our own bias because our own values are different? And how can we know where the text is prompting us to say, ooh, Arthur, bad Arthur, that was not good, right? You know, when is it holding Arthur up as a negative example, which it does at times. Arthur is not by any means unblemished uh, in this text, nor is he, nor is he supposed to be. Um, so it's it, it can it can really it can really be tricky. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Tomas says he reminds uh, it reminds him a lot of King David in the Bible, where he'll he'll do some terrible things, but he's still awesome and God's chosen one. There are some similarities. Yeah, I mean, in fact, of course, Tomas, there's some direct parallels, and in, in some ways, of course, David and Arthur uh, were parallel in being you know, they're two of the nine worthies, right? Um, so, I mean, they're kind of put in the same sort of pantheon, actually. But, um, yeah. Bruce asks if we can judge him based on Catholic teaching, given that Maori would be in a Catholic-dominated society. <sighs> okay. Yes, that's safer than some, but that's still not very firm ground to be on. Because, and Bruce, the, the challenge here is trying to find the distinction, trying to find the boundaries between Catholic doctrine and Catholic practice, right? Or an actual medieval practice. It's one thing to say the church forbade this. It forbade lots of things. For instance, one of the, th and, and Bruce, I can give you right off the top of my head, a huge, very relevant to Mallory example, right? The church strongly condemned trial by combat, right? Trial by combat was roundly condemned by the church. This is not uh, a Catholic practice. Um, they argued, I think it's what seems to me very sensibly, right? That a trial by combat in which you're saying, you know, these two guys are gonna fight and God is going to make sure that the one who is in the right wins. Right. Um, basically, they were saying that the, the position of the church was that to do that is essentially to break uh, the the commandment. Thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Right. That, that's exactly what you're doing. Like you're putting God on the spot and saying we're going to we're going to we're going to make God, uh, you know, perform openly here. And the church said that is totally not not OK. And yet. There are very few occasions in this book where that's questioned, right? A, a trial by combat, most of the time, seems really A-OK -okay, uh, in this book. Um, there, so, so again, you can't, um, you can't necessarily just judge. Uh, uh, yes, the medieval Catholic doctrine is definitely relevant, definitely relevant and good to know and useful, 
but you can't just assume that it is the uh, the uh, the absolute uh, kind of moderating force, if you see what I mean. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's tricky. And again, here you just have to the best thing to do is to just to be doing uh, to be doing inductive reasoning. Just collect as much data as you can and see what does the data point to. Right. This is one of the reasons I do readings the way that I do. This is one of the reasons why I run these classes the way I do. This is one of the reasons why I so rarely get through my slides. One of the reasons why exploring the Lord of the Rings has become the most longitudinal study of the Lord of the Rings, I suspect, in the history of mankind. Because uh, to me, the, the, the best and clearest way to understand a text is to put together evidence from the text, not to, not to cherry pick, right? Not to just sort of take an interest in particular themes from the beginning and go through and pay particular attention to particular bits, um, but to try to build a vocabulary to talk about the text from within the text, to try to understand by just by skipping as little as possible, right? By looking at all the data and seeing where that data points you. Um, that's really, you know, that's, this has always been my argument of, you know, that that's, that's the best and most responsible way to read a text. And at the end of the day, that's kind of what we get. There are things that we can know, right? There are things that we know that, you know, there's stuff that he will refer to that he takes for granted, whether they're from Catholic doctrine or, 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 or medieval legal practice or, uh, or, or, or whatever it is, right? There are things that are, that are good to know that are handy, which can help us to contextualize, to understand some of the references and what's going on. Again, the things that he takes for granted that he would never have thought he would have had to explain to people. Um, but, um, uh, but, but, but yeah, that's, um, that's not, that can only, in my opinion, you know, sort of help us to understand that that helps us in the processing of the data, but it's not, it, it, it can't replace, it can't replace data. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, good. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move ahead. Let's actually make some, make some progress here. So we've just pulled the sword out of the stone, but, or no, sorry, we've just seen the sword in the stone and the failure of everybody else who wanted to be king to pull the sword out of the stone, therefore showing that they are not according to the inscription, which, you know, the, the, the scripture, which just means writing that has appeared on the sword, they are not uh, right wise king born of England. And you'll notice that that is, you'll remember rather, that that is what the miracle is meant to do. It's not about worthiness exactly, right? It's not like the strongest and greatest and mightiest man ever is, but no, it's the one who is right wise king born of all England. Um, this is how to identify Uther Pendragon's heir explicitly. Right. Um, and so none of them are the heir. None of them are right wise king born of England. And so therefore, it's not that they are prevented exactly uh, from attempting to seize the crown after they they uh, attempt to draw the sword and fail. But the miraculous appearance of the sword and therefore and, and you know, there at the this public gathering, everybody's seen it. Everybody's seen the miracle under the sort of supervision and sanction of the archbishop himself. Right. Uh, so this is a completely legit, miraculous occasion. And um, it what it does is it makes it very, very difficult for anybody to then pursue uh, a claim 
on the throne if they fail to pull the sword from the stone. But of course, everybody fails. Um, and uh, and there we are. Tony, exactly. Good. It's not the hammer of Thor. That is a wonderful anti-parallel. Sometimes people might think of the sword and the stone that way, right? Like, you know, the... the only Thor can uh, can uh, uh, you know can can lift his hammer. It is not like that at all. It's it is it is very specific uh, in what it is um, uh, in what it is selecting for, and that is for the one who is right, wise king, born of all England. Um, and the again, the born is important, right? Uh, right, wise king, born, the one who is the heir. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Okay. Uh, all right. Good. So let's well, let's actually see Arthur getting the sword. And Wani come home. So this is, of course, you'll remember the setup for this. Uh, Arthur and Sir, uh, Sir Kay is participating in a tournament. Arthur's brother, uh, and Arthur is squiring for him. Uh, but Kay has forgotten his sword back at the house. He has no sword. So Arthur has promised that he's going to go and fetch a sword for Kay. And when he come home, the laddie and all were out to see the jousting. Then was Arthur wroth and say to himself, I will ride to the churchyard and tuck the sword with me that sticketh in the stone, for my brother Sir Kai shall not be without a sword this day. So when he come to the churchyard, Sir Arthur aleeked and tied his horse to the stile. And so he went to the tent and found no is there, for they were at the jousting. And so he handled the sword by the handles, and leakly and fiercely pulled it out of the stone, and took his horse and rode his way until he came to his brother Sir Kai and delivered him the sword. And as soon as Sir Kai saw the sword, he wist well it was the sword of the stone, and so he rode to his father Sir Ector inside. Sir, lo, here is the sword of the stone. Wherefore I must be king of this land. <laughs> I love that line. Hey, look, Dad! Look what I've got. Um. Uh. So, Karina, yeah, lightly and fiercely. Uh. She went. Karina, did he or did he not have to really work at it? He didn't. Lightly. Uh. Is the word that indicates that he 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 took it out lightly. Like if 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 you'd taken it out heavily, right, it would have been with great seriousness and uh, uh and 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 with much effort. So lightly means he just whipped it uh whipped it out fiercely is the interesting adverb to me there. Um, if, it had, if you just said, uh, you know, and so he handled the sword by the handles and lightly pulled it uh, out of the stone and took his horse and rode his way, it would have just been like, whoop, he just whipped it out and then off he went on. Fiercely though, um, is, uh, is really interesting. Um, he pulls it out easily but with attitude, right? And that detail, uh, it's, it conveys something to me. It conveys more to me about, that word helps me to picture this scene more than any other word uh, that he gives in the, like I, I would have I guessed that he was handling the sword by the handles if I hadn't been told, right? <laughs> that wasn't exactly a revelation to me. Didn't help that much. Lightly is important because it does mean he's not straining at it, right? But lightly and fiercely, right? You know, that, that so this imagining the young Arthur, not just, and actually this, you know, by the way, so of course you will recognize this is one of the scenes uh, that the uh, the Disney film uh, 
was comparatively faithful about, right? Um, of course, they're not really trying to be faithful to Mallory by and large to being faithful to T.H. White chiefly, but nevertheless, um, I, this scene, of course, you will, you know, those of you who are fans of the Disney cartoon will remember this scene from the Disney cartoon. Um, but if you do recall the Disney cartoon, Arthur draws it out lightly, but not fiercely, right? He draws it out lightly, but diffidently. You know, he puts his hand on it in this, like the light and the singing, you know, the choral singing begins. And then finally he draws it out. But when he draws it out, he draws it out lightly in the sense that he doesn't have to put his back into it, right? Um, but as soon as he does, he like stumbles down and he's like, oh, oh, like, oh, what just happened, right? No, that's not how this Arthur does it, right? Mallory's Arthur uh, is a bold and intrepid young lad, right? And he, cause he's decided he's, he's being pugnacious in saying, dang it, I'm going to get the sword in the churchyard. He, he seems to know what the sword in the churchyard is, right? I will talk the sword with me that sticketh in the stone, right? I'm going to, I, I'm, because doggone it, like I said, I would get Kay's sword. So by golly, I'm going to get him that sword. So he goes over and he goes, ha ha, right? And he takes the sword, not only lightly, but fiercely. Um, so uh, yeah, I think uh, is, yeah, so David, does it come from his frustration at the locked house? No, I, I, I think it's just, it's kind of, um, this is done brashly by young Arthur, right? Again, not diffidently, not shyly, not, uh, you know, again, the, the kind of the character of, 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 of Wart, you know, the character of Arthur in the Disney film is not this Arthur, right? Again, and that, that word really suggests that, uh, to me. Um, I, I'm not trying to diss it. I, 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 you know, I, it was, uh, one of the very first Disney cartoons we ever showed my kids. Uh, I really like it, but, um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, Bri Brianna says that every kid in England would try to pull that sword. I bet they did, right? They weren't the first in line, right? The guys who were trying to become king were, but since then, yeah, I bet so. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Veronica, I don't know. One of the things that's unclear to me is exactly how much Arthur knows about the uh, the the sword. On the one hand, you're right. He does. He draws the sword, and then he doesn't draw any conclusions from that, right? You know, he's not like he doesn't go in and say to anybody, uh, like Kay does, right? Um, hey, uh, look at this. I just totally pulled this from the stone right over there, right? That means I'm I'm totally king right now, right? Arthur doesn't go there, so that you could conclude from that maybe he um. Maybe he doesn't know, right? Maybe he doesn't really uh, uh, get it, whereas Kay does. Um, that's possible, but I don't think so. I, I think that he does know because, again, it it's not like he just sees a random sword that he doesn't know. Again, this is how the Disney film does it. Like, oh, hey, look, there's a sword over there. I have no idea what it's about or why, right? But I'm going to go get that sword because, hey, like, Kay needs a sword. There's a free sword, right? You know, uh, uh, that's fine. But that's not the circumstance here. Arthur says to himself, I will ride to the churchyard. He's going there because he knows there's a sword there. Right. And and that that sword is sticking in the stone. This is not a normal sword. right? This is not a normal holding place for a sword. You know, he's not under some illusion that this is like a public loner sword that he can go and get for Kay. Uh, I think it's pretty clear he knows the significance of it, but he doesn't make anything of it. Right. He doesn't uh, make any claims for himself and he fulfills his vow to get the sword for Kay. 
right? And he just comes and he hands it over. Um, he delivered him the sword, right? Um, and I think that's meant to be a sign of Arthur's humility, right? That he's not he's not trying to set himself up and his first thought is not, sweet, I'm totally uh, uh, king now. Um, yeah. Um, Lynn, I, I think that Kay does get it. Um, he's, uh, this is an interesting moment by Kay because on the one hand, he's trying to pass himself. I mean, he, he has a notion here, right? He has a notion to commit some fraud. He is holding the sword from the stone in his hand, right? Um, and so he's like, hey, so that makes me king, doesn't it? Briefly, he goes there. Um, but he doesn't lie to his father, right? When So it's like he's willing to say, if you're willing to draw the conclusion that I drew it from the sword, I'm not going to correct you, right? I'm holding the sword. Therefore, I must be king of this land. Um, <clears throat> I, but as soon as Hector asks him, he says, where did you get the sword? He tells him the truth, right? Arthur brought it to me. Um, so Kay comes this close to perpetrating a serious fraud, right? But he um, he doesn't uh, he doesn't follow through on it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, David is wondering if uh, readers would find it funny. Uh, David, I think that. And by the way, side note, um, that is a of a. a a seriously difficult question to answer. Right? I have spent a lot of time, both in class and even in stuff that I'm writing and working on, trying to figure out, can I prove, right? I wanna say, I think, you know, a, a line is meant to be funny, right? That this is a joke. Can you prove that it's a joke? Like it's harder to do than it might sound like at first. Uh, you might think it's funny, but again, is that about, are you saying something about yourself? Or are you saying something about the text? And if it's about the text, how can you prove it? Uh, that it's funny. Um, it's, um, it's, it can be really tricky. Actually, uh, uh, David, later on tonight, we're gonna get to a passage that I wanted to talk about chiefly because it gives us some evidence on that exact question, um, uh, which I thought was really important and worth uh, worth taking a moment to look at. Um, Jennifer, it is true that Kay sort of functions as comic relief in some versions of the legends. Um, even more than comic relief, though, he's usually just a jerk. Um, he's a bore. He's got no manners. Um, uh, he is... Uh, sort of a contrast uh, to all of the the mannerly and courtly and polite knights uh, of the court. Uh, he's sort of the foil to the great courtesy of Arthur's court um, in a lot of traditions. Um, but you'll notice Sir Kay is not a bumbling jerk, uh, certainly not in these early parts of the text. Um, we see he is a, a genuine and staunch supporter of Arthur and does well by himself. He's not a buffoon. Um, he's not the greatest knight. He gets unhorsed several times. Uh, so, you know, he's not at the top of the rankings, but, um, uh, but, but he, he's, he's no pushover either. He definitely has his moments. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. But anyway, but David, yeah, my quick answer to that question, 
Yes, that last line especially. Lo, theater. <laughs> lo, here is the sword of the stone. Wherefore, I must be king of this land. Uh, that's funny. I think that's funny. I think that's meant to be funny. Um, the kind of wide-eyed, like, um, half-innocent, half-cunning statement by Kay there, right? Um, which he immediately then backs down from and tells the truth about. Like, that's that's a funny reaction. I, I, I think that I... I um, my uh, my conclusion, tentative though it would have to be, would be that I think Mallory is, is trying to be funny there. I think we're supposed to laugh. Um, hard to prove, though. Anyway, okay, let's keep going. So after they established that Arthur is the one who pulled it from the stone. And therewithal, Sir Ector, knelled doon to the earth, and Sir Kai. Alas, said Arthur, mean own dear father and broader, why knell ye to me? Nigh, nigh, me lord Arthur, it is not so. I was never your father, nor of your blood. But I wot well ye are of an higher blood than I when ye were. And then Sir Ector told him all who he was betaken him for to nourish him, and by whose commandment, and by Merlin's deliverance. Then Arthur made great dole when he understood that Sir Ector was not his father. Seer, said Ector unto Arthur, wol ye, wol ye be, be my good and gracious lord when ye are king? Else were I to blama, said Arthur, for ye are the man in the world that I am most beholding to, and my good laddie, your motor, your weef, that was that as well as her own hath fostered me and kept, and if ever it be God as will that I be king as ye say, Ye shall desire of me what I may do, and I shall not fail you. God forbade I should file you. Sir, said Sir Ector, I will ask no more of you than that ye will mock my son, your foster brother, Sir Kai, seneschal of all your landes. That shall be done, said Arthur, and more by the faith of my body, that never man shall have that office but he, while he and I live. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. And I, I was forgetting, uh, Jennifer, I think you had asked a question earlier, a, a language question, which I skipped. Um, uh, say it was in, it was uh, here, where was it? Um, it was the, it was a, the, ver the verb wist. Yes, he wist well. And as soon as uh, Sir Kay saw the swear, he wist well. Wist is a really important word, actually. Uh, to wist means to know, to understand. Um, it is derived from the word, it's uh, connected with the word wit. Um, uh, like knowledge, sense, brains. Um, so he wist well. He, he, he understood well. He knew it well that it was the swear to the stone. So he, he recognized it. Um, uh, wist is, uh, is a, a, a very common very common uh, Middle English verb and a very important one. So yeah, he he knew he knew well that it was the sword of the stone. Um, uh, Karita had a question. Great dole, uh, 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 wonderful. Yeah. Um, so dole, uh, dole is sorrow and grief. Um, so to make great, so Arthur made great dole when he understood that Sir Ector was not his father. He's really sad, right? So Arthur's reaction, Arthur's He's emotionally crushed when he discovers that Ector is not his father. He loves Sir Ector. Um, and he, so it is 
I think really interesting and important for Arthur's character and for our seeing Arthur's character. Again, notice when he pulls the sword out of the stone, he doesn't immediately proclaim himself, right? He's not like, hey, everybody check this out. I'm totally king over here, right? That's not his response. He just fulfills his oath and brings it to Kay, even though, and doesn't say anything when Kay's like, dude, I'm totally king now. Um, so he, so that we, we already see his humility there. And here upon discovering, um, so now, you know, he's, 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 got reason now to think that he's king. He just pulled the sword out of the stone and Hector's confirmed it and everything. And then Hector kneels down and he's uncomfortable. Like, why are you, why are you kneeling? Right? Don't kneel to me, dad. Um, and then Hector confirms, confirms his kingship, right? No, you are king, right? And not just like you are being plucked out and made king, right? Um, in this way, uh, Tomas, in this way, he is unlike King David, right? There's a kind of a King David thing, oh, you know, the younger brother chosen out to be, you know, anointed as king and stuff. Again, you can you can do a kind of King David parallel there, but the difference is King David is kind of chosen out of nowhere, right? Not nowhere from God's perspective, but um, but there, it's not like he has any blood claim to be anointed king, right? Um, it doesn't reveal anything about who about his parentage right when he is anointed king it's just he's been chosen arthur is being acknowledged king here not because he has been chosen to fulfill the role of king for some reason best known to god and merlin right what is being revealed here is that he is remember right wise king born um his true parentage is being revealed so Hector is confirming that yeah i was never your father nor of your blood but i wot well ye are of an higher blood than I when you were, right? You are even, uh, you you are you are of a. I can confirm you're not my father. You're of, you're of even higher lineage. <clears throat> the kind of person who might have responded to pulling out of the stone by saying, "Hey, everybody, look at me, I'm king," might have responded by Hector kneeling before him and saying, "I am not your real father. Your real father. You are of much higher lineage than I am." that same person would be like, sweet, that is excellent news, right? Because dad, you're kind of cool and everything, but like, you know, being king is cooler. Uh, so that's really great. Um, anyway, yeah, so he, um, uh, he, uh, um, <laughs> Arthur says, Luke, I am not your father. Exactly, right. And, and, and Arthur's response is no, right? Uh, but this is a purely emotional response. And we see this really very human, very adolescent glimpse of Arthur here, right? Um, his reaction has nothing to do with kingship, has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with power and everything to do with the emotional attachment of a boy for the man that he has always viewed as his father, that he always understood to be his father. Um, and the revelation far from undermining that, accentuates that, right? You are the man in the world that I am most beholden to, and my good lady and mother, your wife, my good lady and mother, which he still calls her, right? That as well as her own hath fostered me and kept. Now in retrospect, he appreciates that, right? So, you know, it's rather than feeling any kind of sense of betrayal, right? How could you lie to me all these years? You told me that you were my dad and I, I believe that you were my dad and now I'm dead. You are lying. That's not his reaction, right? Instead, he's like, wow, now knowing 
that I am not your son, I can now appreciate even more everything that you and your wife have, and you know, and and mom have done for me, right? Because now I know that you did it, even though I was only a fosterling, and you 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 kept and fostered me as well as your own, right? Um, then so this is both generous and also um, uh, this is generous and kind and humble. One thing that I feel pretty clear about, right, is that we're supposed to approve of Arthur here. Um, again, as far as the following the cues of the text, um, you know, uh, uh, Marilyn, I don't know if we're uh, to what extent we're supposed to like and approve of everything that Arthur does in this in this coming section, but I'm pretty sure we're supposed to approve of him here, right? And so it's interesting to see the things that are valued, right? The things that are emphasized uh, here in the text. Um, yeah. Um, okay, good. Let's see. Sorry, I'm just clearing up some windows here. All right, good. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, sweet, Karita. I agree. That's exactly what Arthur is here. Um, yeah, yeah. And Tony, you're right. Sir Hector was definitely not keeping him in the cupboard under the stairs. Not at all. And actually, Tony, I, I've had Harry Potter on the brain recently for various other reasons. Uh, my son Matthias is rereading the series and we've been talking about it some. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a moment, this is actually an interesting sort of point of contrast, right? You know, the, the way that the whole first half of, of uh, you know, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone um, hinges around the, the the concept of, you know, Harry, you you are in this sort of foster environment, which is not your natural home. And now you are discovering that you really belong to this, you know, your real identity is revealed and you, we, you know, you, you're discovering that you are in fact part of this other greater, much, much better, cooler world uh, than the horrible and mundane one that you've been surrounded by. Um, King Arthur uh, it's 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 there there are many similarities of course in the shape here, but what King Arthur does is absolutely opposite to that, right? Um, you know, and uh, it's it's uh, uh, it's very different. Um, good. James and Stephen want to know what a what a seneschal is. Um, so it's and I could be I. I'm not on firm ground in answering this question. My understanding of it has always been that he is, it's sort of one of those official positions, kind of like, it even in some ways sounds kind of like, he's like the steward of Arthur's household. This doesn't mean he's a servant any more than like, um, you know, the knights of the bedchamber are, you know, of the king are the people who like actually like, you know, uh, are his, uh, you know, work night and day as his valets exactly um but uh so it, there there is to some extent a position of formality here but basically it means that arthur is going to take k into his court k is going to have a, a special position of authority in his court um and he's going to be so exactly what his duties and responsibilities are we don't really see him doing 
those all that much, right? You know, we 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 rarely see like NK in his role as Sinuscal comes in, and um, you know, that's that's not really uh, something that we see very often. Um, but what we do know uh, that it's 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 a position of official privilege and of honor in Arthur's court, um, and one that would be appropriate to K. You know, he's not asking him to make K his heir. You know, he's not asking K, you know, like make K your, you know, right hand man in the entire kingdom. He's not asking, you know, so actors ask is very reasonable, right? Um, give him a, a, a position of privilege, a position of special dignity, um, you know, sh sort of maintain your special relationship with K. Um, it's okay if he's not, he doesn't have to be given massive political power. He doesn't ask for a position of massive political power. He doesn't ask for, um, uh, you know, vast lands and stuff, though I, I presume K is still going to do pretty well with that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I would, um, I would be, I, I can see that some, uh, some of you have, a strong anti-K bias, which I totally get. If you've read other Arthurian literature, K is often uh, quite nasty, uh, and if not a wicked person, uh, almost always an unpleasant person. Uh, Mallory's K is not going to be completely. Um, he's not going to be completely without those elements, but I would say. Suspend your judgment on K. Um, Mallory's K is not the same as a lot of the traditional Ks. It's like a, the Ks that we get uh, in Celtic Arthur stories, for instance, or um, in Creation de Trois. There's a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Veronica. The, 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 steward essentially steward of his house but again i'm not sure how much actual work he does uh as far as taking care of you know managing the 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 financial accounts like does he actually do the bookkeeping himself Kay? you know does he actually you know oversee the 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 kitchen staff and everything I, i'm not really sure how hands-on k is in that process uh but um uh but again, certainly he has that position. But again, think about think about that role. Again, it's intimate, right? It's it's he's like the yeah Timothy, like the chief of staff, right, of Arthur's home staff, right? Again, he's not he, he's 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 not in a national position, right? He's not. That doesn't mean he's on the privy council. That doesn't you know he's not the peer of the dukes of the realm. It's 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 much closer. It's much more intimate than that. But it's a position of very real. Um, privilege and proximity to the king, right? Um, so, um, and not the steward of Gondor. No, no, not, not, not like that. That was, uh, that was, that was a little more uh, special. Um, David says, might that let K control access to the king? Yes, potentially. I, I don't think completely, but um, that could be a, that could be an element uh, of it. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder if this is what the steward of Gondor was doing when the kings were still around. 
Maybe, but there was always that sense with the stewards of Gondor that the steward, like one of the stewards job was to stay home and not go to war, right? So that he could run the kingdom while the king was off, when the king was off, right? So um, I think really, even before the time of the ruling stewards in Minas Tirith, there was, there was still the general sense of the steward of Gondor's job was to be the deputy in charge, right? When uh, when the sheriff is away, um, and then just the sheriff was away for a really long time, right? And and so the deputy was in charge for a really long time, and that was young Boromir's question, right? When does the deputy become the sheriff if the sheriff returned not? Um, so again, that 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 seems to be intrinsic in the stewardship role, which again is not um, nobody nobody ever is going to say. Well, but if Arthur dies, at least we've got Kay, right? That's just, no, that's not how it works. Um, okay, okay, let's keep going. Remember, so right after this, they do call the public back together and the archbishop, right? And so they, at Christmas, remember this all happening at Christmas, uh, Arthur pulls it out, right? Ta-da, here it is. Look, oh, I pulled it out. I put it back in and pulled out, put it back in. Um, and they say, we want to see him do it again at Candlemas, <laughs> right? So they they bring even more people, a, a bigger audience together. Um, there is a great deal of resistance, perhaps more. I know this was one of the things that surprised me most about these early narratives when I first read them, um, is that I kind of always had thought that the sword and the stone thing, it was kind of a done deal, right? The whole point of that was that it would uh, really make it obvious and there could really be no further question about who was right wise king born, right? But apparently there is because we have to call together a return engagement. So at Candlemas, many more great lords came thither for to have won the sword, but there might none prevail. And raked as Arthur did at Christmas, he did at Candlemas, and pulled out the sword easily, whereof the barons were sore aggrieved, and put it, put it of in delay till the high feast of Easter. And as Arthur sped afore, so did he at Easter. And there were some of the great lords had indignation that Arthur should be king, and put it and put it off in a delay till the feast of Pentecost. Then the Archbishop of Canterbury, by Merlin's providence, let purvey then of the best connectors that he meeked get, and such connectors as Uther Pendragon loved best and most trusted in his dies, and such connectors were put about Arthur as Sir ba uh, Sir Baudwin of Britain, Sir Kynus. That would be Kay, by the way. That's his his foster brother, Kay. Uh, sometimes with an N, sometimes not with an N. Sir Kynus, Sir Ulfius, Sir Barsius, all these with many other were, were always about Arthur, day and nicht, till the feast of Pentecost. And at the feast of Pentecost, all manner of men aside to pull at the sword that walled aside, but none might prevail but Arthur. And he pulled it out afore all the lords and the commons that were there, wherefore all the commons cried at honest, We will have Arthur unto our king. We will put him no more in delay, for we all see that it is God's will that he shall be our king, and who that holdeth against it, we will slay him. And therewithal they knailed at honest both rich and poor, and cried Arthur mercy because they had delayed him so long. Okay, here we have 
real um, uh, uh, practical politics in action here, right? The great lords of the kingdom are really grasping at straws. And, the, you know, they saw him at Christmas and they managed to delay it saying, okay, let's wait until Candlemas, right? Uh, 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 you know, which is not long. It's in February. So, um, so we're going to delay till Candlemas because uh, many more great lords came thither, right? So presumably we were able to delay because, oh, well, not everybody's here, right? There, there's, there, there's some more of the, you know, the barons of the land who really need to see this for themselves if they're going to be convinced, right? So here he comes, like, oh, the sword is in, the sword is out, the sword is in, and then they were sore aggrieved and put it of in delay till the high feast of Easter, right? They're like, okay, well, let's, let's delay making any decision until Easter. And they don't have any good reason um, for, uh, uh, for, for delaying. Um, yeah. So um, uh, it, it, this is, so this is, this is pure, like they're just kind of grasping at straws here, right? It's obvious what is happening here. Uh, it's very plain which direction this is going. So those people who want to be king, have they've got no leg to stand on. And they know they don't. So all they can try to do is delay, right? Let's, let's do this again at Easter. That'll be great. So they do it again at Easter. And then they put it off to Pentecost. At none of these times are they putting it off huge gaps of time, right? Um, just a couple months at a time. Now it's Pentecost and they do it again and and notice the two things that happen, right? Which again speak, uh, tell us some interesting things about the political realities of the situation, right? First of all, Arthur says, I have an idea. Let's get him a bodyguard, right? Um, he's going to start treating Arthur as king, right? To recommend that he gets treated as king. Um, let's put about him some of the most trusted knights of Uther Pendragon, the ones that Arthur is going to be able to count on most, right? And so we get Sir Baudouin of Britain. He's, uh, uh, he, he will come up a lot. Sir Kay, of course. Ulfius and Brastius. We remember Ulfius and Brastius. Ulfius uh, uh, was the one who was Uther's uh, right-hand guy. He was one of the, was the guy who went with Merlin and Uther to Tinchon. Uh, Tintagel in disguise on the night that Arthur was conceived. Brastius, of course, was the one whom Ulfius was disguised as, uh, who was a knight of the Duke of Cornwall, who came in apparently with Igraine. But ever since the marriage of Igraine and Uther, um, Ulfius and Brastius have been the two primary, were, you know, were their two primary knights. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Um, uh, then we um anyway so right so so he's gonna he's gonna get all the most loyal guys and he's gonna bring them around arthur because again merlin merlin sees which direction the winds are blowing here right the dukes don't want to accept arthur they have no good reason not to accept him apart from the fact that they are sore aggrieved and they do not want arthur to be king they had indignation that arthur should be king Right. This like nobody who claims to be, you know, who who it is claimed is Uther's son. Um, they mostly it seems want to be king themselves. We don't know that they have any personal gripe against Arthur, apart from the fact that he's a kid and is wrecking their shot at this. Right. Um, 
Merlin sees what's that this is going to come to blows. And so he gets Arthur, his loyal people. Uh, the second thing, um, the second thing is the commons, of course, right? And here we can see again one of the political realities. The commons, you know, we don't have parliament yet, right? The commons don't have much voice in government here, um, but they take a very strong hand uh, in the crowning of Arthur. They are totally convinced. They have, in fact, every stake in peace being established. Uh, the the civil war that was threatening to to break out all over the place here uh, in uh you know, in the realm as different lords are vying to be king, that's bad for everybody, right? Um, this kid, this Arthur, who's not raised up out of nowhere, he's not a commoner, right? He's not from among them exactly, but they're convinced. They're happy with this. Um, and they, uh, you know, we will put him no more in delay. We all see that it's God's will that he should be our king, right? Let's you know, stop playing selfish political games here. Um, who holdeth against it? We will slay him. Okay. All right. That is forceful on the part of the commons. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. That's interesting, Sharon. I never thought of that. Sharon is pointing out that this is the he is acclaimed king on the sixth time that he pulls the sword out of the stone. First to hand it to Kay, second to show Kay and Ector, third at Christmas publicly, then at Candlemas and Easter and Pentecost. So this is the sixth time that he's publicly, that he's drawn the sword from the stone. And that six is not a very good number. No, it's not. Um, I don't think that this is um uh i don't think that this is necessarily a meant to be an ominous sign there are ominous signs but they're usually more obvious than this um and usually somebody will draw our attention to them fairly forcefully um i think that the significance here is not the number of times that he's drawn the sword out of the stone um I do think that the uh, church calendar is important, right? That he first draws it out at Christmas and then he last draws it out at Pentecost, right? So uh, the, 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 the celebration of the incarnation is when he is first revealed as king. Um, he is finally vested with po political authority at the Feast of Pentecost. For those of you who don't know, Pentecost is the feast that celebrates the descent of the Holy Spirit after the ascension. So uh, when the Spirit, uh, when the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles and they speak in tongues uh, and they are invested uh, with uh, with 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 power and with the words to go and speak and Peter gives his big first sermon uh, and 2,000 people are converted. Uh, this is all in the in the beginning of, of the book of Acts. Um, that's the Feast of Pentecost. That's what the Feast of Pentecost is about. So that parallel seems to me not at all coincidental. Um, that this is going from Christmas to Pentecost. And also notice in doing so, um, you know, in short space, right, in less than half a year, going from the beginning to the end, uh, essentially, of, you know, the the 
the life of Jesus, right? Um, so there is a sense in which he is, yeah, exactly, David, being anointed with power at Pentecost does seem uh, sort of fitting in that way. Um, and there is, Bruce, a kind of recapitulation of the life of Christ. I, I, absolutely, I do think. Um, and uh, uh, and he... Um, um, yeah, <laughs> David Erbach is disappointed uh, that Monty Python is wrong and King Arthur really did have uh, uh, a mandate from the masses, right? Uh, it is a pointed irony here, right? That in fact, uh, uh, supreme executive power uh, does derive from a mandate from the masses, right? Which is exactly how King Arthur gets his throne. Uh, so uh, uh, Dennis, the constitutional peasant, uh, would in fact have approved of, uh, <laughs> of King Arthur's uh, uh, coronation here in Mallory's version which is kind of funny. Um, but, um, but anyway, um, so anyway, yes, I, anyway, I, I do think the connection now, having said that the whole church calendar thing, um, I want to be a little bit cautious. Pentecost from now, Pentecost is going to be a big, lots of things are going to happen at Pentecost, uh, over the course of the rest of the, uh, of the rest of the book. And I'm not sure that we're going to see the same kind of neat pattern every time something happens at Pentecost. To some extent, big things tend to happen at feast times when everyone is, uh, you know, on the holy day when everyone is gathered together to celebrate the feast. Um, that's like the time when everyone is all together, you know, uh, to celebrate the feast tends to be when things happen and those things all happen uh, on, uh, you know, on church holidays. So, you know, there's there's some extent to which I'm not convinced that it always is necessarily kind of symbolically meaningful in this way. But this time, yeah, kind of feels that way. Kind of feels that way. Um, and uh, um, let's see. Oh, and somebody remind me. I always forget this. Candlemas is one of the more uh, uh, Candlemas. Isn't that the feast that celebrates? the uh the cleansing of the virgin in jerusalem right doesn't isn't candlemas the time when they when uh, that that celebrates when um when uh when jesus was presented at the temple yeah okay the 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 presentation in the temple okay whew that's what i thought okay right yeah that's candlemas um uh yeah yeah good okay all right that's what I thought. That's what I thought. I had a moment of panic there. I'm like, wait, I'm not, I'm not misremembering Candlemas. Am I, am I? Yeah. February 2nd. That's what I thought as well, Jennifer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Craig, there's a Swedish metal band called Candlemas. Really? That's a really interesting name for a band. Okay. Um, anyway. Okay. So, yeah, Mike, that is interesting. Of course, again, thinking about the parallels between Arthur and Jesus, which the whole incarnation Christmas thing uh, initially suggests, the presentation of the of the twelve year old Jesus at the temple um, at Candlemas is relevant, right, to Arthur. Um, we don't know exactly how. One of the questions what somebody asked earlier before, how much time has passed since Uther? Uh, we have no idea exactly how old Arthur is here. I don't think he's very old. He is uh, uh, still squiring uh, for um, for Kay, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's like nine. He could well be 13 or 14, um, which is which is practically 
full grown, uh, uh, we'll see some very young knights uh, in this uh, in this book. Yeah, and uh, dolorous stroke. No, uh, nothing ever does seem to happen at Michaelmas. Uh, yeah, no, that uh, uh, that almost never comes up. Um, yeah, good. Um, all right, cool. Let's keep going. And King Arthur was glad of their coming. Uh, and this is, of course, that. So the, these are those who are coming to support him. Right. Uh, when it looks like the barons are still not going to have it. Right. And King Arthur was glad of their coming, for he went that all of the kings and Canictes had come for great love and to have done him worship at his feast. Wherefore, the king made great joy and sent the kings and Canictes great presents. But the king is would none receive, but rebuked the messengers shamefully and said they had no joy to receive no yeftes of a beardless boy that was come of low blood, and sent him word they would none of his yeftes, but that they were come to give him yeftes with hard sweaters betwixt the neck and the shoulders, and therefore they come thither. So they told him, so they told to the messengers plainly. For it was great sham to all of, the, all of them to see such a boy to have a rule of so noble a realm as this land was. With this answer, the messengers departed and took to King Arthur this answer. Wherefore, by the advice of his barons, he took him to a strong tower with five hundred good men with him. And all the king is aforesaid in a manner laid a siege to for him. But King Arthur was well vitiled. So, uh, so his uh, supporters have come to him, right? And these are the 11, well, it's not 11 at first. It's, uh, uh, what is it, five at first that they start with before they, 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 they call in their reinforcements, right, to bring their total up to 11. But this is King Lot and the king with the 100 knights uh, and the other leaders of the opposition party here who have decided they, are, they, they will not swear fealty to Arthur. They will not have Arthur uh, for their king. Um, there are kingdoms, kings of different kingdoms, nearby kingdoms. There's lots of little kingdoms around the British Isles, right? Uh, king Lot is up in Orkney, which is the way northern part of Scotland, right? He is way the heck out there. Um, but apparently, you know, he's a powerful king and he is certainly personally uh, uh, um powerful certainly he's a, he's a great knight um yeah so you know in a lot of ways jennifer the difference between a king and a knight and a baron is so knight um means you have taken the order of knighthood right um so you can you should be but if you are a king or a baron you better be a knight as well right you, you need to have been knighted um uh, that's kind of your entree into the whole world, right? Um, remember when I was talking about the estates last time, right? The second estate, the Bellatories, those who fight, right? That's their job. So you don't, um, if you're a ruler of any kind, right? Whether you're ruling an estate or whether you're, you know, like a, a, a you know, like a, like a Sir Ector's estates, or whether you're uh, ruling a realm like I guess Orkney is a realm uh, up there in northern Scotland, um, you you're one of the bellatories right you you better you're going to be in the front lines uh to defend uh your country and you're going to have you know a minute men, men at arms under you uh whom you will call up and who will uh, come in to fight on your side um but um but yeah it's as far as like the relative power of like kings and barons and stuff um 
I will admit, when I read the text, I just kind of lump them all in the same category. I mean, so like for me, you know, if someone's called a duke, like the Duke of, of Cornwall at the beginning, right? Or if someone's called a king, uh, like the king with the hundred knights or King Lot, um, I just kind of vaguely translate that in my own head to like dude of separate political authority, because there are many people who are called kings and remain kings who swear fealty to Arthur and be and serve Arthur, right? And who are, you know, knights on his round table, but they're still kings and they're still called king, right? King Pelinor is an example. Um, king Pelinor, whom there's no way we're going to meet tonight. Um, he's going to be a knight of the round table and will always be called King Pelly. He won't cease to be a king, uh, even when he, uh, even when he is a knight of the round table. So, um, he, anyway, so yeah, so these are, these are, uh, people who could, should swear fealty to Arthur and they're not gonna, they're not gonna have it. Right. So if one of the things you're wondering is, are these foreign kings that are invading England and trying to take advantage of this? Um, no, these are people who should, oh, who were probably under Uther Pendragon's, uh, uh, lordship, right? Um, I mean, notice that what they say, um, uh, they, they object to a beardless boy that has come of low blood. Um, uh, it's great shame to all of them to see such a boy to have rule of so noble a realm as this land was, right? I love the was. Uh, yeah, this king, this realm was going straight to the dogs. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so David Urbach is wondering, would these nobles have objected to any bearer of the sword and the stone who wasn't already strong enough to intimidate them? Or are they really concerned about his youth? Notice they're not just uh, accusing him of his youth. They're talking about um, his blood, come of low blood. They are openly questioning. He's not Uther's kid, right? Um, presumably, I mean, it would have been known. Uh, I presume there's been no secret made of the fact that he was raised in Sir Ector's household. Now, Sir Ector is no slouch. Uh, you know, he's not a peasant, but he wasn't king either, right? Um, so, um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I definitely think, um, I definitely think that they're questioning the whole thing. Right. They're saying this is a sham from beginning to end. Um, notice that this means they're saying like, yeah, the miracle, whatever. We don't care. Right. They are openly questioning the miracle or disregarding it. It never even comes up. Um, they are treating they have chosen to treat Arthur as if he were simply a usurper um, and a, a laughable usurper. Right. A beardless boy who's trying to a beardless boy of low blood, presumably, um, who is trying to claim the uh, uh, the kingship. Um, Joe, uh, well, vitiled means uh, he's they've got lots of food. Um, so they have lots of uh, lots of vittles stored up there uh, in the tower. So they're besieged in the tower, uh, Arthur and his 500 supporters. But they're fine. They can hold out for quite a while because they've got plenty of food. Um, and uh uh yeah with um 
Yeah, they're going to give him uh, gifts of hard swords between betwixt the neck and the shoulders. That's the gift that they've come to bestow upon him. Uh, yeah, and uh, note, by the way, um, notice the play there, right? That's, uh, think about that. Picture that for a second. What are they, what are they saying? What is the, what is the implication? What is the weight of that particular threat? There's, there's a couple things there, right? On the one hand, they're saying, if you meet us in battle, we're going to kick your butt, right? You're a beardless boy and you can't stand up to us. And now that might seem, on the one hand, that might seem like, well, that's kind of a, uh, not a great way to decide who's going to be king, right? Just that like the burliest, biggest bully is the one who, who, who should be king. Well, but remember, that's kind of the king's job. Um, you know, a wimpy king is no good. Um, you know, ask Henry VI. So um, you don't, nobody wants that. David Attlee, exactly. It's a mockery of the knighting ceremony, right? You are a beardless boy. Are you even knighted? You're just like a squire or something, aren't you? Come over here. Well, I'll knight you, right? I'm going to take this. And instead of, you know, tapping the sword on your shoulders, I'm going to strike it at your neck, right? Um, it is a deliberate mockery. You've probably not even been knighted. We'll take care of that for you, right? Um, uh, we'll give you a we'll give you a knighting that you won't that you won't soon forget. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that that's the uh, um, uh, I, I do think that that's uh, 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 one of the implications that they're making there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but notice Arthur's first reaction is generosity, right? He thinks these kings have come to to swear fealty, right? Which is great. Oh, this is going so well. Uh, and his his overture to them is generosity, and specifically uh, to give them gifts. Uh, which I think is is good. One uh, problem that I think might come up at on many occasions. Uh, many of you are Tolkien fans and therefore possibly more familiar with Anglo-Saxon traditions than with uh, sort of high medieval traditions. Um, so if you're sort of imagining Hrothgar, you know, the ring giver, uh, that's not exactly how kings work in the high Middle Ages, but it's also not exactly not how they work either. And this, so this is one interesting piece here where we can see that the giving of gifts to those who would swear fealty to him is definitely a part of what Arthur is doing. And it is a sign that <clears throat> Arthur is doing his bit, right? He is playing the part of King well here. He's, uh, he's doing what he should. Their actions are inappropriate. Okay. And within fifteen days, there came Merlin among him into the city of Carleon. Then all the kinges were passing glad of Merlin, and asked him, For what cows is that boy Arthur made your king? Sirs, said Merlin, I shall tell you the cows, for he is King Uther Pendragon's son, born in wedlock, gotten on a grind, the duke's wife of Tintagel. Then is he a bastard, they said all. Nay, said Merlin. After the death of the duke, more than three hours was Arthur begotten, and thirteen days after King Uther wedded a grind, and therefore I pray him he is no bastard. 
And Hol saith nigh, he shall be king and overcome all his enemies, or he will die, and he shall be long king of all England, and have under his obeisance Wallace, Ireland, and Scotland, and more realms than I will no rehearse. Some of the kingas had marvile of Merlin's wordes, and damned well that it should be as he sighed, and some of him loch him to scorn, as King Lot and Mo other called him a witch. But then were they accorded with Merlin that King Arthur should come out and speak with the kingas, and to, to and to come south and go south. Such assurance there was mad. So Merlin went unto King Arthur and told him how he had done, and bade him fear not, but come out boldly and speak with him, and spare him not, not but unswear them as their king and and chivetine, for ye shall overcome him all, whether whether they will or nil. Uh, and by the way, that is the phrase that the modern word willy-nilly comes from, whether they will or will he, nil he. Um, uh, nil is the opposite of will. Uh, ne will, uh, and it's it gets contracted into nil. Uh, so that's, uh, but just by the way, that's where that comes from. Um, okay, um, so Merlin comes and his, notice the esteem in which they hold him, right? The kings, Arthur's enemies, are very cheerful, right? They're very happy to see Merlin. They all respect Merlin um, until he starts opposing them, right? And then they get mad. But, um, you know, it's like, for what cows is that boy, Arthur, mod your king, right? That's embarrassing. What's going on here, Merlin? Um, and then he vouches for him. And again, note, Arthur's entire claim is based on his parentage. Um, he doesn't say, even Merlin doesn't say, Arthur is destined to be king, right? Arthur is the great king. Uh, and no, he doesn't go there, right? He's like, he is king because he is Uther's son born in wedlock. And we get all the technicalities, right? No, no. Uh, she was a widow by three hours. Right when uh, uh, when when Arthur was conceived, and they had been married for 13 days before he was born, so he is doubly, doubly legitimate. Right, uh, either one of those things would uh, be would, would would be able to show he's not a bastard. Right, he was born in wedlock, uh, son of Uther Pendragon, so it's all good, it's all well. Right. Um, but now notice how after asserting this, right, after explaining the legal position, he does then go on to add, and who saith nay, he shall be king, right? He's going to be king whether you approve of it or not, right? You can't stop him being king, and he's going to overcome all of his enemies. And, and or he die, that means before, heir, right? Before he dies, he shall be long king of all of England. And Wales, Ireland, and Scotland will all be under his obeisance, right? Will all obey him. And more realms than I will now rehearse. So he is going to be to rule over all of England and hold sway over all of the lands around for a long time, right? This is Merlin just predicting, right? This is what is going to happen. Um, so he says, first of all, Arthur is the legal king. Secondly, you had better, it would be in your best interest to get out of the way of this freight train, right? Because you're not stopping this freight train. Um, their response 
is to accuse him, some of them anyway, to accuse him of witchcraft, which is interesting because we haven't seen anybody do that yet, right? Um, no one has batted an eye at Merlin's goings on. And indeed the narrator has not even informed us what mag magic Arthur is doing or by what me mechanism. I mean, so far really, there's only two things that we have seen Merlin do that are legitimately magical. No. One thing so far to this point in the text, one thing, disguise, right? He disguised Uther and himself and Sir Ulfius. He disguises himself all the time at the drop of a hat, right? Um, multiple times in one conversation, right? Um, but yeah, Jennifer, he's not um, he's not accused of necromancy, right? Um, nor do I understand what if is there a distinction between being a witch and being a necromancer? Uh, my guess would be no, um, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, but notice a thing here. They're accusing Merlin of being a witch, but they are the ones who are opposing the revealed will of God. Remember, the commons are fine for this reason. They're like, it is clear. The will of God has been made clear, right? They accept the miracle. These kings are refusing to accept the miracle. If there is anybody who is putting themselves in an awkward relationship with the Almighty here, it's not Merlin, explicitly not Merlin, right? Merlin is in an active partnership with the Lord God Almighty here, right? Uh, it's the kings that are setting themselves up in opposition. So their accusation of witchcraft of him um, sounds kind of feeble. It really does. And um, uh, and even they don't seem to strongly enforce it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, see, it's a fascinating question. Uh, that is wondering whether it's God's will or whether this is the manipulations of Merlin. Let me say, a reading which is merely premised on a sort of modern skepticism is, in my opinion, really hard to maintain. Um, hard to maintain in the sense that if you're going to go through this text from beginning to end saying, well, anything that would appear to be an actual miracle is probably explained by somebody like Merlin, you know, pulling the wool over everybody else's eyes. That's, that's not going to hold up throughout. That's definitely not going to hold up throughout. Um, I think this is a, this is a book that believes in marvels. Those marvels are certainly by no means all Christian and of uh, explicitly uh, 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 Christian, uh, sort of done within an explicitly Christian context. However, um, it certainly it certainly believes in miracles, and we are given no reason to believe 
Merlin himself says that this is a miracle, right? He's in support of the miracle here um, when he helps to arrange the miracle. But I will also say this text doesn't go very far out of our out of its way to confirm that Merlin is not the one manipulating events, right? I mean, everything that it shows Merlin do, doing suggests that he does play a significant role uh, in making this stuff happen, even to the arranging of the miracle, uh, such that you wouldn't have to be a, you know, a, a very suspicious uh, kind of person to think that maybe this miracle that has happened on Merlin's cue was in fact caused by him and not just anticipated by him. But the fact is, anticipating things is the main thing that we do. I was I was debating when I said too before I was debating whether we could prove that um, Merlin's Merlin is using some kind of magic, you know, some that, that there is that there is something otherworldly, something marvelous in Merlin's predictions, because that's certainly the other thing that he does. Um, it's not just to know things like here, right? He is in a position to know about the parentage of Arthur, and so he can attest to it personally, because uh, he is the only one who knows the entire story, literally the only one who knows the entire story. Um, even a grain doesn't know the entire story necessarily, right? But he does. Merlin does. Um, but of course, it's not just that kind of privileged position of information that Merlin is in. He is also uh, frequently making predictions like this, saying this is how it's going to be, right? Um, the future indicative is Merlin's favorite tense and mood, as I keep saying. Uh, this is what he... Um, this is what he really does all the time. Um, and in doing so, I would draw attention to the fact that although he does seem to act like a, uh, a fairy at times, right, as we looked at in the very first class, he seems to be exactly having uh, playing the role uh, of of a fairy from the woods who comes in and, and meddles and does these uh, these things. There are many other points where he comes in and sounds almost exactly like an Old Testament prophet. Um, and so, you know, to say, is this a miracle from God or is it Merlin is at times kind of like saying, well, is that a miracle from God or is it just Elijah, right? Well, if it's Elijah, then it is a miracle from God, right? That's not necessarily a sensible distinction to make. And with Merlin, we get that same kind of that same kind of sense. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Dolores Stroke is of course recalling um, uh, some of uh, C.S. Lewis's comments on Merlin, and of course, you can see uh, the best place to look for C.S. Lewis's contemplations on the character of Merlin is in that Hideous Strength, Volume Three of his uh, his Space Trilogy, um, where we get a lot of Merlin. There, in fact, we get Merlin as a character. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, he is uh, he is definitely this kind of really interesting sort of composite character, where we can see all of these elements kind of working together. None of them are explained away. None of them are distinguished from each other. He just goes around 
doing all the things, doing fairy things, doing prophet things. Um, and he's carved out a niche. He's comfortable with it. Most everybody around him is comfortable with it. We don't necessarily quite know what to, uh, what, what to do about it. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dr. Dimble is the one uh, who explains it really well uh, in uh, that hideous strength. Exactly. Um, okay, cool. But also there's going to, we, we will see there's going to be a, a yet a third side of Merlin here in the text as well as we'll see here fairly soon. Okay. Let's see how the beardless, beardless boy does. Um, before he goes into battle, for the first time, Merlin takes him aside. Sir, said Merlin to Arthur, fight not with the sweared ye had by miracle, till that ye see ye go unto the wares. Then draw it out and do your best. So forthwithal, King Arthur set upon him in their lodging, and Sir Baudouin, Sir Kai, and Sir Brastias slew on the right hand and on the left hand, that it was Marvile. And always King Arthur on horseback laid on with a sword and did marvelous deeds of armies, that many of the kings had great joy of his deeds and hardiness. Then King Lot brake out on the backside, and the king with a hundred connectors and King Carados, and set on Arthur fiercely behind him. With that, Sir Arthur torned with his knictes and smote behind and before, and ever Sir Arthur was in the foremost press till his horse was slain underneath him, and therewith King Lot smote doon King Arthur. With that, his four knictes rescued him and set him on horseback. Then he drew his sword Excalibur, but it was so breaked in his enemy's iron that it guff light like a like thirty torches, and therewith he put him on back and slew much people. And then the commons of Carleon arose with clubbers and staves and slew many knictes, but all the kinges held them together with her knictes that were left on life, and so fled and departed. And Merlin came unto Arthur and consiled him to follow him no further. Okay, several things. First, notice Merlin's role here, since we were just talking about that. Merlin's role here as a counselor to some extent, right? Like we see that at the end, right? Merlin comes unto him and counsels him to follow him no further. So don't pursue him as he retreats. You know, don't pursue them as they retreat, he says to Arthur here. So here he's giving advice. Right. That would not be a wise move, whether we'd be unwise militarily, whether we'd be unwise politically, whether it'd be unwise personally. We're not really sure. But Merlin says it's not a good idea. So Arthur doesn't do it. The advice that he gives him at the beginning of the battle is much more prophetic. Right. Um, uh, uh, fight not with the sword that you had by miracle. So Arthur does have the sword that he drew out from the stone. And we learn in this passage that that sword that he drew out of the stone, of, of the stone is in fact Excalibur, right? It is named Excalibur. And when he draws it, it is so bright in his enemy's eyes that it gave light like 30 torches. Uh, and he put them on, he, he, he put them back and slew much people, right? That's good. Um, that's, uh, that's, that's praise right there. Um, yeah, good. Um, oh, so, uh, uh, when he's called Sir Arthur here, right, um, that is a knightly 
thing. I'm I'm I am fairly sure here because notice it's the same Sir Arthur torned with his canictus. Um, he's called sometimes King Arthur and sometimes Sir Arthur. I mean, you'll notice in two consecutive sentences here, right? With that, Sir Arthur torned with his canictus, and ever Sir Arthur was in the foremost place, and therewith King Lot smote down King Arthur, right? Um, I do think, so on the one hand, these are kind of interchangeable, but I actually do think that those are significant, right? Um, he is being, notice in those three usages right there, the first two times the sir is used when emphasizing his knightly actions, right? W what he does in battle, right? These are, this is, this is the evidence of his own personal knightly prowess, right? When King Lot smote down King Arthur, that's like kind of a that's that's a prowess thing as well, right? King Lot is kind of all that. I mean, he's a he's a very strong knight. Um, so there's that element of it, but this is also a political thing too, right? Um, when one king smites down another on, on the battlefield, that's kind of a big deal, right? So the big deal there. This is not just one knight attack. They're both knights, but they're also both kings. Uh, and that makes a big difference here. Um, yeah, yeah, Craig, no, I don't think there, uh, that the shining of the sword means that there are orcs nearby, um, but this does seem to have been the right moment in the battle to draw it out. And again, go back to Merlin's advice there. Um, fight not with the sword um, till that ye see that you go unto the worse. Only when you are losing, draw the sword. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, then draw it out and do your best. That sounds, the way I read that, and I could be wrong, the way I read that is not as a piece of practical military advice for Arthur, right? Um, the impact of the sudden drawing of your super bright flashy sword in the middle of the battle will have its greatest impact on the morale of the enemy if you and of your uh, supporters if you draw it at this time and under these circumstances i don't think that that's what arthur uh, that's what merlin is saying there um it sounds instead quite like um you must like it sounds a little bit more like um, stand by the gray stone when the thrush knocks, honestly, right? That is like a, uh, the, the, the moment for the drawing of the sword will not come until. And when you find yourself put to the worst, that will be the moment when Excalibur is meant to be drawn in battle. And that's when you should, that's when you should do it. Um, <laughs> Bruce Heidrick <laughs> is noticing. <laughs> wait a second. How is he fighting with Excalibur here when he's still going to get Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake later on? Yep. Uh, there is one of the biggest, most completely unreconcilable uh, uh, contradictions of the early part of this text. There's just no two ways about that. It's a flat con. Uh, he. There are two stories for how Arthur gets Excalibur. Mallory's quite interesting choice. I'm going to do them both, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why choose? Why choose when you have two cool stories and you can tell them both? Um, it's, uh, it's going to be, it's fine. So yeah, if, 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 if you're looking at this and you're like, wait, doesn't he already have Excalibur? 
yeah, just roll with it. <laughs> just roll with it. It's fine. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Stephen, good. That's a really good parallel too. Stephen is uh, is thinking of um, that that Merwin's uh, thing at the beginning is is almost like the the uh, Moses holding up his staff and the Israelites are winning when he's holding up his. It's not exactly like that, um, but it, it, it has a little bit of that flavor. Um, I agree. I agree. Um, okay. Um, Let's keep going. Oh, uh, David, Atley, I think, wasn't it you I was talking to about earlier on? Here's the passage. So, Ophius and Brastius get sent to King Ban and King Boris down in France, right? And they welcomed them in the most faithfulest wise, and said they were most welcome unto them before all the king is living. And therewith they kissed the letters and delivered them. So this is Ophius and Brastius speaking first. They kiss the letters and hand them over. And Juan, King Ban, and Bors understood them and the letters. Then were they more welcome than they were tofore. And after the host of the letters, they gaff him this answer, that they would fulfill the desire of King Arthur's writing and bade Sir Ulfans and Sir Brastias tarry there as long as they would, for they shall have such cheer as might be made them in these marches. Then Ulfans and Brastias told the king of their adventure at the passing for the for the eight Canictus. Remember how they were ambushed by these eight knights, and they rode down two of them, and then the other six, like, chase ahead in front and confront them again, and they ride down two more of them, they do this four times until they take out all eight of them, right? Awesome. Good times. Ha ha, said Ban and Bors. They were our good friendes. I wold I had wist of them, and they shall not not so have escaped. So these two knights had good chair and great giftes, as much as they meeked bear away, and had their answer by mouth and by writing that though two kinges would come unto Arthur in all the hast that they meeked. Um I um one of the so first of all we can see notice the gift giving here right uh, notice the the local customs of generosity and gift giving and and uh, you know there are lots of things that we can see here to kind of affirm this is how good and generous uh, uh, right-minded knights and kings act right we can see that the number one reason I wanted to look at this passage very briefly Bannon Bors's statement aha they were our good friends. I wished, I wold, I had wished of them. I, I, I wish that I had known of them and they should not have so escaped. Um, they were our good friends. That is sarcasm, plainly, provably sarcasm that Ban and Bors are using there because those are the Knights of King Claudius who is their enemy. Um, and the whole reason that Ulfius and Brastius are fighting with them is that they are trying to, they're basically trying to, um, uh, to, uh, 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 what's the word? Um, blockade, that's the word. They're trying to blockade King Ban and King Bors, basically. Um, so we know that those knights are their enemies and they laugh and say, those were our good friends. I wish I'd known they were there, right? Um, that's important. 
That's important because sarcasm is one of the hardest things to prove. Uh, I, like I said, to prove that someone is joking when they say something, to if you want to try to suggest that someone is being sarcastic in what they say, that is really, really hard to prove. This is really interesting. So we have a we have an important piece of data here. Um, Maori does use sarcasm. That's a thing that Maori uses. Uh, and I, I think that this passage is pr absolute proof of that. I am 100% convinced. Uh, and that is a thing that could be interestingly relevant uh, later. Uh, Craig says, does marches suggest borderlands here as it would later? Yeah, basically there's, you know, they're saying that, you know, as, as uh, well, I don't know if it necessarily would mean borderlands exactly, but like, you know, as, uh, as, as such cheers might be made them in these marches. Um, I don't think they're at their home castles, Bannon Boers. I don't think they, they, they come to them at their center of power. Um, so they're like, you know, we're out kind of in the hinterlands here, but we'll give you such cheer as we can. It is also possible that there being uh, that there's some sort of more polite sarcasm here, right? That they're in fact treating them very lavishly uh, at, you know, a place where they have full capacity uh, for um, for hospitality, and they're downplaying it, right? By like, oh, we'll give you as much cheer as we can here, but you know, we're kind of hard up. Um, that's a little bit less clear. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Um, all right. I gotta let you guys go soon. Let's see if we can maybe do one more. Yeah. All right. Um, Break so. Oh, so this is, so Merlin is sent, so they, they, Ophius and Brasti has come back, right, with the letters from King Ban and King Boris, and they're like, hey, great, awesome. So, um, so that went well, and they'll definitely come. And then Merlin is dispatched in order to get King Ban and King Boris's men of arms into England in an expeditious fashion, right? Right so, Merlion passed the sea, well of the tile, both by water and by Londa. And when he come to the sea, he sent home the footmen again. So this is when he's coming to the sea from the French side. So he's gone there, he's gotten the men. And remember, he gets like like 30,000 horse and 5,000 foot. And he's like, ah, whatever, let's leave the foot behind. Um, and took no more with him, but 10,000 men on horse. Okay, 10,000, not 30,000. Anyway, 10,000 men on horseback, the most party of men of Artemis. And so shipped and passed the sea into England and landed at Dover. And through the wit of Merlion, he led the host northward the previous the privest way that could be thought unto the forest of Bedgrime, and there in a valley lodged him secretly. Then rode Merlion to Arthur and to the tall kingis, and told him how that he had spade, whereof they had great marvel that any man on earth might speed so soon to go and come. So Merlion told them how ten thousand were in the forest of Bedgrine, well armed at all pointes. Here is another Merle, uh, uh, Merlin Marvel, right? Um, and this last Merlin Marvel is different from any other kind of Merlin Marvel that we've seen so far, right? This is not a prediction of the future. This is not uh, a uh, the sort of the 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 revelation of prophetic uh, authority like with the sword and the stone um this is not i'm gonna use some kind of glamour to disguise myself or other people 
this is um, cunning, just cleverness. This is Merlin as man of science, right? Merlin who knows the roads really well and who can figure out how to, um, that everybody is amazed that Merlin could, that anyone, any army could possibly travel as quietly and quickly as Merlin has brought this army from France. You will remember that the 11 kings, when they meet in battle, they're like, what? How can they possibly have gotten here already? We we knew nothing of this. Our scouts told us nothing. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so it's, um, uh, this is um, uh, another element of Merlin, right? That he is simply a well-informed guy. You know, he is, he is, he is a clerk. He's a learned man. He is a man of science who has resources, right? And this has always also been a part of Merlin's, uh, of Merlin's role. Um, there are many earlier stories, like in, I'm pretty sure, isn't it in Geoffrey of Monmouth, when Merlin is given credit for building Stonehenge, right? Which he moved from Ireland. It was originally in Ireland and he contrived the giant's ring and he contrived to have it disassembled, transported over uh, to Salisbury Plain and re-erected there. And the marvel was that he could do this, right? That he was able to accomplish this and not by wonder, but like by science, just by cunning. Um, you know, he had some kind of mechanisms for doing this that everybody else thought was uh, was a marvel. Um, so, uh yeah. Um, Karita, that's a really good question. Uh, she says, is this actually 10,000 men or is it more like rare men on horseback? Um, how precise are the numbers? Um, on the one hand, the numbers are sufficiently precise that Mallory often does math during the battles, right? So like we will get like, they started with 30,000 men and then you know, after this time, 5,000 men had been killed. So the 25,000 men left, went over here, and then they, you know, they lost another 10,000 men. So now they're down to 15. So there are times when, uh, during the course of describing the action, Mallory does that kind of math, which suggests that he does actually care about the numbers of men. And he's not just vaguely waving his hands and saying there were a lot of them, like totally 10,000. Um, so on the one hand, yes, he actually means that. Um, but on the other hand, um, he's not, <clears throat> I think, really rigid with it either. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't invest too much in it. The main thing that I, and this, by the way, I think is true not only in Mallory, but is generally true in like medieval histories and things like that as well. The numbers are an important part of the story. Not because they're like counting noses and really making extremely precise historical claims. I think they would have considered that mere pedantry, but rather because it's part of the story that they're telling. So that there should be a lot of them is important because Boars and Ban are very strong kings. And Merlin, so Merlin's effectiveness in getting the large army there and King Ban and King Boars's uh, uh, the 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 strength of their aid, right? That they come to him with ten with ten thousand knights. So that's supposed to be a big number on the one hand, right? But you'll remember they're outnumbered when they face the eleven kings who come to them with thirty thousand men. Uh, so 
that's so we get both of those stories. Mallory is balancing the numbers, it seems, in part, in order to be able to tell precisely this kind of story, right? Arthur comes to the fight with great and, and strong support from King Ban and King Bors, and yet they're the underdogs, right? They are outnumbered by the vastly superior force of the 11 kings. So think of it in those terms. Think of it as kind of trying to give you cues about, so this, this is to tell you, since Arthur comes in with like half the men that the 11 kings have in this battle, um, that helps you to understand how you're supposed to view Arthur and his men during this battle, right? They are underdogs who are defeating a vastly superior force. That's an important part of the story. That's why I think he's told us the numbers. Okay, um, I'm gonna stop there. Um, I'm gonna stop there. <laughs> Not at all sure uh, uh, how far we're gonna get next time, but we'll see. We'll we'll do our best. Um, there's a lot of funny things to cover in the next uh, uh, in the next sections, but we will do what we can. I'm not going to worry about it too much. Uh, so thanks everybody. I will see you guys in a week, uh, and then so I'll be gone the week after that. But I will will see you guys next week, and we will continue trying to figure stuff out and watching the early career uh, of Arthur here. So thanks very much everybody. Good night now. <laughs>